0: This narrator advises that the listener digest the following as entertainment. The showrunners behind it are neither six figure filmmakers nor professional critics, they are casually critical. Hello and welcome to Casually Critical, the podcast show starring two pals who love to talk about storytelling. I'm your and host, and I'm James Daniel, Eden, your Car- co-host. For those of you James. who are
1: curious, yes, Daniel, did you think you did something wrong there? I don't know. Were
0: you rushing or were you dragging? I'm your host. Daniel Carpenter.
1: And I'm James Newton, your co-host. For those of you who are curious, we will be starting this review free of spoilers. Our casual correspondence segments will follow, and we will end this episode with a spoiler-filled discussion. Today we're going to be talking about Damien Chazelle's Whiplash, which came out in 2014. Daniel, what do the people need to know about this movie?
0: It's awesome. You should go see it. Seriously. James and I saw this movie last night in preparation for our Review for you, and um, it's uh, it's better than I remember it to be, which isn't saying a lot. I remember it to be pretty good. Yeah, but the more you dig into this movie, the more there is to like. Uh, it was based on a short film. Uh, that Damien Chazelle, who directed and wrote this, no one else, it was just him. He was trying to get this made into a feature, but he needed help with finances and getting funding. And so he decided to take a scene or scenes from this movie, make it into a short film, submitted it to the Sundance Film Festival in 2013, And then it ended up winning an award and then got the funding.
1: Oh, my gosh. And then it came out the year after as a feature-length film. That's incredible turnaround.
0: James, how about you describe to us the synopsis of this movie? Yeah,
1: okay. A 19-year-old kid uh, gets enrolled in Schaefer, which is the top most prestigious uh, fictional school in the fictional United States. And Mm -hmm. uh, he has a huge passion for drumming. He moves quickly up the ranks into... Uh, one of the most prestigious uh, bands within Schaefer, the jazz one of the jazz bands, uh, led by um, a man named Fletcher, who is played by J.K. Simmons, who's a tightly wound. Well, it's hard to describe. He's not tightly wound. He's very abusive. He's, he's a very abusive guy. He's he's an enigma, though. It's it's hard to get an exact read on what exactly his intentions are, and I won't tell you his entire plan with um, and his philosophy about music, but it's very interesting. And it, it will definitely challenge your beliefs about aspiration, about, um, striving for greatness, pursuing your passion, uh, and the lengths that people are willing to go to do those things. Um, I don't know if there's much else I need to explain.
0: No, really. That's about it. That's the gist. Yeah. But let's talk about our initial reactions to JK Simmons as Fletcher. Okay. James, JK Simmons, what are your thoughts? Um, okay, so the first time around I saw this
1: movie, I knew that there was a lot of yelling and cursing and intense moments with this guy in the in the scenes. Um, and uh, it hit me hard the first time I saw this movie, but the second time, every scene he was in gave me anxiety. Yeah. It's crazy. The psychological effect that this guy has has sort of translated into the audience, into me. Uh, this guy makes me anxious. It's it's a super great movie. It's uh, Daniel. I don't know what exactly the genre is for this. What would you classify it as?
0: Probably a drama thriller.
1: Yeah, I think thriller thriller is definitely appropriate for this, even though it doesn't have any of the action that a thriller would typically have.
0: How about how about you, Daniel? What's your take on J.K. Simmons? I've never been able to see J.K. Simmons in the same way again. I just can't see him or his other roles the same way again. I just can't help but. Shake this feeling that he's just so restrained in all of his other roles, and I only know him from Sam Raimi's Spider-Man trilogy, where he plays J. Jonah Jameson, another great character. Uh, He's in Zootopia as the mayor. Why he would go from this role to Mayor Lionheart Zootopia? (laughs) I have no idea. He's also in Legend of
1: Korra, a uh, animated television show. He plays Tenzin. But in every
0: single role he's been in, including all the ones we've mentioned above, I just can't unsee Fletcher. Yeah. I can't. And I think what makes him so terrifying is how he's able to blow up Fletcher's role without making him overtly cartoony. Yeah. He's human and he's terrifying. He's in great physical shape. Dresses in all black. You can't read those eyes, though. Nope. Uh, There's a phrase, the eyes are the window to the soul. And you'll notice some people are more sensitive to this than others, but some people have like kind of you can see the spark in their eyes. They're just happy or there's this energy behind it. Yeah. You see Um, this a lot in
1: uh, Miles Teller's performance, who uh, plays the main character, Andrew Neiman. He is very good at showing subtle emotions. He's a very um, introverted character in this movie uh so a lot of the stuff that you pick up uh, about this character is just subtle nonverbal things and i gotta say miles teller does a does a knockout job with this role as well
0: yeah which is which tends to be a tragic thing with uh, movies like this because obviously him and everyone else are kind of in jk simmons's shadow yeah even though this isn't like joker in the sense that i think it wasn't deliberately written that way this is a very well-written film yeah and andrew certainly has a lot to do he has a lot of uh um, active influence on this film, even though it's about him being influenced on by Fletcher. Yeah, Like you said, there's a lot of good things this movie has to say about ambition, about dreams, about what it takes or what it maybe doesn't take to get to that point. Yep. There's such a powerful use of contrast in this film. How so? Noise versus silence. Mm. And I think this is especially apparent in the editing of this film. Yeah, There is so much quiet that goes on. There are pauses that you feel so intensely. Mm -hmm. Um, There is noise. Um, I've mentioned this on several episodes. I'm going to say it again. This time, I think, is a good example. But what I look for in our artists is a lot like what my mother told me she looks for in good musicians. Someone that knows when to be quiet and when to be loud. Because when you're quiet and you know how to use that effectively, the loudness becomes louder, even though the actual volume doesn't change. And so I think Damien Chazelle does an amazing job, especially when you look at his short film Whiplash, which also stars J.K. Simmons. There's a lot of seeds of the final product, but there's a lot that needs to be fine-tuned. There's some pacing issues that aren't quite to the level that this movie brings them to yeah. and the lighting. But I'm going to stop myself there and let you perhaps talk about the lighting in this. Oh,
1: thank you so much. Wow. <laughs> oh, I feel that baton pass. The use of light in this film is so excellent and uh, so uh, bold. And that is why I, a an animation aficionado, uh, was even able to pick up on this. Uh, the way Fletcher is lit, the way the main character is lit, uh, the way uh, certain rooms are lit gives you an idea of what's going to happen. There is a certain tone of golden yellow light that's associated with Fletcher, this abusive band instructor. It's a visual cue that gives the audience this sort of gut feeling of like, oh gosh, like what's going to happen? And I can tell you right now, Some of that has to do with the editing. Some of that has to do with the sound design. A lot of it has to do with the lighting. But then there's also the lack of light sometimes that happens whenever someone steps out of the light or someone steps into the light or the light's shut off. Stepping in and out of light sometimes can be related to the limelight or the center of attention or ambitions in this film. There's really cool um, associations with the different kinds of light in this movie. Um, But I'll let you digest some of that whenever you see this movie, which you totally should. It's not a super old movie, but it's a relatively old movie, so
0: you should be able to have easy access to it. This film is a very stark contrast to what we talked about with Pixar's Onward a few episodes back, uh, and even Parasite with some of the camera work. Visually, this is not a pretty film to look at. The color choices are hideous, not hideous in the sense that it distracts from the story, but hideous in the sense that it amplifies the lack of comfort you feel while watching the story. Like you said, there's yellows, um, not warm banana yellows, but very harsh, kind of greenish yellows. Yeah. There's a lot of green in this, a lot of blacks, a lot of shadow. Uh, Fletcher and his black attire almost makes him slip in and out of those shadows sometimes. Yes, exactly. There's a lot of great use of that. And I don't think I really appreciated that as much as when I saw Damien's short film Whiplash, which you can find with one Google search on YouTube. Right. Um, it's set in a sunny kind of bluish generic looking classroom. And in the feature, it's set in a dark nighttime classroom there's a lot of shadow and that really changes the way you perceive these scenes they feel scarier they feel like a nightmare yeah they feel like something you want to pinch yourself just to get out of
1: you're right that's a that's a very good point
0: so wrapping this up James, why should people watch this movie and what would you give it out of five stars
1: so i'm going to give this movie a five out of five um this movie upon second watch i have decided uh deserves that promotion um I think it's good if you appreciate music, if you appreciate cinema, if you like movies that make you think, if you like fun movies. This movie is fun in its own way. I had a ton of fun watching this movie. I also was in a constant state of fear, Um, but it was fun, so I recommend you guys see this movie. There's a lot of language, uh, so I don't know how parents would feel about taking their little kiddos to see this movie, Uh, but it's it's worth it. If you're okay with that language, I think it's definitely worth sitting through just because of the questions it asks and the way that it ends. It's, it's fascinating. Daniel, what about you?
0: I would also give this a five out of five. This movie is harsh to watch. You don't want this movie to blast if you're going to watch in your parents' house and you're not allowed to watch movies with excessive language. But the language is used effectively here. Some movies, especially in the R-rated genre... Language is often tossed about, whether or not it's swear words or just negative language. I just don't like it because it's lazy, because there's a lack of knowledge of the effectiveness of those words. I think there's a lot of great conversation to be had, and if your kids are old enough and you think they can handle the language, I would say this is a good family movie if you want to spark some really intentional conversation. James the one thing you said that I would actually disagree with is I don't think you need to like music to enjoy this movie Which I will touch on more in our spoiler review But I think this movie makes the world of competitive music accessible to people That maybe don't know the ins and outs of how it works You can still get a general gist of what's going on to appreciate the story That being said, let's go into our casual correspondence segment All
1: right All right, so Daniel, I uh, jogged out down the driveway and I checked the mailbox and it was empty. What? And again? I'm kind of hurt. I don't know.
0: Um, you know when Charlie Brown like checks his mailbox for Valentine's? There's no really uh, good way I have to segue into our plug, so we're gonna we're gonna plug it again with our outro music. Want to join the conversation?
1: Follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Casually Critical Podcast. To get the inside scoop on future episodes feel free to message us on either platform to join in the casual correspondence or provide feedback on the show. Now it's time to dive into our spoiler review.
0: That's right. It's spoiler hour. All right. And we're back with our spoiler section. See how graceful we we transitioned into that? Yeah, it was great.
1: I went, I ate dinner.
0: I went for a jog. Yeah. Yeah, it it was great. It was fun. All right. Enough crap. We're here to talk. Let's talk about what we love talking about, the ending. Yeah. Uh, um, A lot of people, well, I don't know about a lot of people, but some people I find really like how this film wraps up because they're like, ha, you see? Uh, Andrew gave the bird, so to speak, to Fletcher. <laughs> no pun intended. Uh, he became the man he wanted to be while showing that Fletcher isn't the one who runs his life. And James, why... Is it that those people are incorrect and the ending is not as happy as people would like? I wouldn't say that those people are incorrect. I would just say that that is one of
1: two interpretations, and I think that uh, there are two camps here. And there's the Andrew camp where, oh yeah, he stuck it to, he stuck it to Fletcher, and he, he ran the show and he took control. But the other thing was, well, I think the other camp says. Fletcher was kind of pulling the strings all along, and he knew that if he was really determined, that he would come back and he would take control of the show. Um, so it's 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 really it's really a you gotta gotta pick a side here. But as always, I always straddle the line between both sides because I'm a coward. And I say, well, (laughs) Andrew welcomed himself into this darkness. He he said, oh, I'm going to step into this shadow and I'm going to allow myself to be abused. I'm going to abuse myself. I'm going to abuse others. Um, I'm going to allow myself to be abused by Fletcher if it means becoming great. Uh, And he willingly submitted himself to that multiple times. And I think because of that, They both had a hand in the matter. Um, I wouldn't say one was manipulating the other. I would say they were both working together to create this dark and twisted Masterstroke drum solo. What's your opinion, Mm -hmm. Daniel?
0: I like your interpretation, James. While you hide in the trenches, I'm just going to jump out and start running over to the enemy lines. Do it. I think Fletcher ended up winning. But it really depends on how you define Winning. Oh, in this very vague. Now we're getting philosophical. Scenario. Let's let's do it. Um, there's actually, I took some notes this time around when I was watching the movie, and there is one wow, crucial piece of dialogue Fletcher dork. says. Thank you. Uh huh. Um, <laughs> the final concert. Um, Fletcher is kind of building this up, and I don't think just for the guys in the band, but also for Andrew. He's saying, "Hey, the critics watching this, they never forget." Which is a very important piece of advice because like, hey, if you screw up, they will never forget that. You will be canceled. Right. Uh, Also, uh, important to note, he's like, hey, these guys are really big. If you succeed and do well, your career is going to be made for you. But the most important dialogue exchange, specifically between Fletcher and Neiman, comes when he embarrasses Andrew. He deliberately sabotages him and gets him uh, to walk off stage. And he apologizes for having such a, quote, avant-garde drummer. Uh, Just before uh, Neiman walks himself off stage, he goes over to Andrew and whispers, I guess you don't have it. And he puts emphasis on that. And I think that is deliberate. The way Fletcher has stationed himself, he has Andrew in checkmate. If Andrew is embarrassed and walks off stage, it's no loss to Fletcher because it just confirms all the abuse that Fletcher has given Andrew. However, if Andrew stays and shows Fletcher who's really in control, all he's doing is proving Fletcher right. Either Fletcher wins through his abuse, or you're proving that his abuse worked and that you've become something truly special. And on one hand, his abuse has worked. Andrew has become a better drummer, far better than we saw him at the beginning. On the other hand... He's also emotionally abusing probably himself as well, as well as becoming kind of a mini Fletcher to his friends and family, yep. as well as sacrificing any kind of emotional health outside of his own narrow-minded view of, I want to be the best drummer. I want to be remembered. gave up on his... I want to be right. one of the greats. He, he dumped his girlfriend. He has bad relationships with his dad she and his so extended nice, family. Too. She was so sweet. And so was he.
1: His dad yeah. was such a sweet man. If you guys have ever seen Stranger Things 2 or Mad About You, he plays Neiman's dad. He's really great. Uh, I like the way that they established their relationship at the beginning because right off the bat, he's like, hey, are you going to eat any of the Raisinets? And Andrew's like, no, I just eat around him. And his dad's like, I'll never <laughs> understand you. And I'm like, wow, that's a very good establishing scene for the, their relationship for the rest of this movie. It's well amazing. done."
0: He... His dad is dorky, but in a realistic dad sense. Yeah. And their relationship isn't perfect. There's some conflict, but it's more of a conflict of personality than anything else. He definitely
1: keeps his son's pride in check. I will say that.
0: Right, right. Their action does speak louder than their words in that scene because they're together watching movies while bonding over his dad's strange popcorn tastes. Yeah. And his dad is defensively criticizing Andrew Neiman for, you know, not embracing the love of combining your raisinets with your popcorn (laughs) it's it's a strangely wholesome scene that we'll never get again for the rest of the movie it's like enjoy this while it lasts enjoy the
1: wholesomeness of this well the first date the first date scene i gotta say is pretty wholesome whenever you talked about like uncomfortable amounts of silence There was a very great instance of that within the first date scene where I was like, oh, I feel this on a spiritual level. You don't know how many times I've
0: experienced this
1: whenever I've been on certain dates. It's just like, usually I don't run out of things to say. Oh,
0: Right. And it's like some of us that are a lot more well-spoken when it comes to uh, comparing to Andrew, it is very awkward because, you know, it's adorable, but also it's like, you know, when he was asking Nicole out, uh, he's tripping over himself, yep. but and she maybe cruelly, maybe not. She kind of pranks him almost, right. but she's also awkward too. You know, she's trying to make light of the situation, but she actually makes it worse. And then she's like, "Oh, I'm so sorry." Like, you <laughs> <Right>. know,
1: <laughs> another brilliant instance of awesome editing. Like, right? They did nothing to doctor that. They didn't touch it. They just let it ride out to the uncomfortable end. Whereas right. you get these really snappy cuts in the band room and during the performances and whenever he's practicing that are just really, really pretty and really, (sighs) it feels like an action movie.
0: Yeah, the point I was going to say is there's is a there's a lot of differences in editing and pacing, but one of the biggest is the two worlds of the two different band studios. So you have Mr. Kramer, who you may not know who he is, even if you've seen the movie, but he's the African-American teacher at the very beginning. He runs the band that Andrew was a part of just before Fletcher kind of took him over. And in the brief scenes we get with Mr. Kramer in his class... We kind of feel like it's more of a family setting. Like, they're all kind of casual. Like, all right, guys, let's, you know, turn your pages to here. Yeah. And then Fletcher walks in. And from the first scene, Fletcher has this almost godlike presence. Whenever he enters the room, you can tell immediately based on people's responses who he is. They never even say, like, oh, man, he's such a big deal you know Fletcher he runs the top band studio in Schaefer Conservatory which is already the biggest New York City uh conservatory ever in in the world so so he's a big deal like they never say that you just tell yep based on their interactions based on the way the students see him and even the teachers the way no one talks directly to him he does the talking you can tell he's a big deal and you can tell immediately why Andrew wants to be with this guy like what you were saying, when he gets into Fletcher's band, the atmosphere is incredibly different. And the editing helps sell that. They're very much militaristic. They're very blunt. They're, yeah. When he walks in, he walks in directly at the perfect stroke of the time he said he'd be there. Mm-hmm. He walks in. People have already tuned their instruments. They're, They're showing every
1: individual as opposed to everybody as a band. Did you notice like how the extreme close-ups yeah. were like... It kind of feels like yeah. a doggy dog world. They're never showing... Too many people in one shot where it's like right. like everyone's at it against each other
0: because they don't want to get kicked out of this band because they want to right. make it. And the use of focusing and then that scene when Fletcher raises his oh. hand just before he signals oh. for them to start. He just so raises good. his hand after telling them the song and the measure. And he just waits and the camera rotates around Fletcher. We just see his hand. And then his hand moves two, three, four, and then there's an explosion of noise, and we get immersed in that sweet, silky sound. Oh, it's so good. I had this. I had this thought. Daniel I had this thought. Okay.
1: I wonder if Damien Chazelle decided, actually, nobody in this room, whenever they're in this room, are going to play badly, except for well, except except for maybe the other two drummers. But nobody in this room is actually going to play poorly. Everyone's going to play perfectly. Everyone's going to play to the best of their ability in real life. But in the film, it makes it ups the contrast more. It makes it makes um, Fletcher look more perfectionistic. If he's calling out imperfections in something that looks
0: and sounds perfect, even to a trained musical ear. Fletcher just has impeccable taste. Yeah. And here's the thing. From a non-musician standpoint, I have no idea if his taste is warranted or not. Like I can't tell based on listening to it. That's like, what to I'm me saying. It sounds great. Like maybe yeah. there's nothing
1: wrong. Maybe there yeah. actually, in reality, is nothing wrong. And that's just to up the like the meticulousness of Fletcher. Uh, how detail oriented right. he is. Like the one guy that's flat, nobody notices. Nobody can tell. Right. Whenever Andrew's rushing
0: or dragging in that scene, no one can tell. And I do want, I, I kind of wish we had a guest on this podcast, like someone who is a trained you know, jazz musician who had the ears at least, yeah, to, and the experience to back up a lot of this. Uh, there's mm-hmm. a lot of great world building in this movie, and we you kind of mentioned that in the non spoiler review. I kind of called you out on it um, from at least my perspective. In this movie, there's a lot of nerdy terminology that's used, especially towards the end with the final concert. Fletcher is building up the critics watching this, and he said, Hey, you could be a blue note signee, a Lincoln Center core. None of, like, hardly any of that stuff we actually get. But here's the thing. We don't need to get it. We get the gist. Uh Through the film, I learn what a core is, even though no one explains it directly. Like, hey, you're one of the core members. Oh, I'd rather be a core than an alternate. Like, I end up rooting for Andrew. I'm like, i like, I want him to be a core. And then Fletcher at one point's like, you know, Neiman, you know, I'm glad I made Neiman a temporary core. And he says that in front of Neiman. And then Neiman gets so... Oh, he gets so angry, and I get angry too. I'm like like I'm gonna attempt- punch him. Oh, <sighs> I want him to be a permanent core, even though you know I have no idea. Like you know, you don't need to be a fantasy or sci-fi writer to build your world, and you need to know about world building, even if it's not a fantasy world. This movie simply points and illustrates that fact. Damien Chazelle kind of wrote this from his own experiences uh, as a jazz musician, even though his teacher, I assume, was not nearly as abusive but he did tap into his insecurities during that time. And even so he's able to speak to us. So I'm able to go in and the movie isn't condescending us like, Oh my gosh, I know this and this and this, like it's treated as a matter of fact. And the story helps explain it as we go. James, there's one scene I wanted to talk to you about. This is a scene. That's one of my favorite scenes in this movie. Yeah. It's the scene with, uh, when Andrew is having a conversation with his extended family, Oh, his cousins, um, Oh, my gosh. Oh, boy. There's a lot in that scene that actually really hits me hard as an artist, and I think hits many people as artists yeah. in their performing arts. Even if you're in theater or a filmmaker or an animator, the one thing that hit me really hard, his cousins are like, one's a footballer, the other is like a scholar, and his uncle and his aunt are kind of really praising them up. Yeah, And there seems to be a decent enough conversation that happens up until... One of his cousins asks, isn't music, like, subjective? And when you know what Neiman's gone through. My blood begins to audibly boil. Oh my gosh. And I I kind of have been doing a lot of talking for here. Uh, What did you think of that scene? And maybe that dialogue specifically. I really love the
1: (laughs) come play with us. And then Andrew says, four words you'll never hear the NFL say. (laughs) <laughs> oh, <laughs> Got him. oh, it's so good. I, I love that he speaks up for himself. I think yeah. that gives you a good glimpse into his passion. Um, cause it's still mm. kind of early on in the movie, maybe early second act, late first act. Um, mm. and it's the first time he really speaks up about his passion in a defensive way where it's like, this yeah. is my life. And like, I've never seen much use for friends because I'm going to be great, basically.
0: And I love it's So twisted because I love him standing up for himself. Yes. I love him roasting his cousins. But I also hate when he talks so naively about what he's saying. He's like, not he's talking. Like, rather naively, be, well, he's saying like, I'd rather be drunk and dead at 30 and have people remember me. And it's like, I totally support the passion behind it. But I'm also terrified because he doesn't seem to be hearing himself talk. I think he does. I personally think he does. Now,
1: I don't think the audience is supposed to agree with him, but I think yeah. that Andrew knows what he wants. He knows that he's good. I don't know. There were a couple times the first time around watching it, I was like, "Dang, this kid's cocky." But the second time around, I'm like, actually he's kind of justified in everything that he's saying. Not everything mm. that he's doing. The decisions that he's making are not decisions that I would make. But I'm just trying right. to like I'm trying to say like If the Wheel of Fortune had spun a little bit further, maybe that's where I would be. Or like, I don't know. Mm -hmm. I can empathize with him. That's what I'm
0: trying to say. That makes sense. Yeah. From a narrative perspective, I think we're seeing a lot of Andrew in his dialogue, but we're also seeing little bits of Fletcher in Andrew's DNA Ooh yeah. during that conversation, that kind of blatant apathy towards what other people might be going through and just that pure defensiveness, that kind of that mask that he puts on. There's also a similar apathy when he's breaking up with Nicole. In fact, yep. during an interview with Damien Chazelle, the direction he gave Miles Teller to do as Andrew, when he's breaking up, he's like, talk as if you've been talking to a wall with the same dialogue and Nicole and the wall have become interchangeable to you, mm. how you just have total disconnect from what you're saying. That I think because the way Damien envisioned the character, his tunnel becomes so narrow that... Everyone else that's in his way of becoming the best drummer is nothing more than just an inanimate object. Yeah, They're just an object to him. Um, Backtracking a little bit, when his cousin asks, isn't music just subjective? That hits me really hard because let me tell you, nothing gets my goose more than when someone says, oh, isn't film just subjective? Isn't animation all subjective? There are some people that have taught the arts or at least have been experienced in the arts that have said similar things. And let me just say for the record, I disagree. If film was all subjective, there would be no such thing as a controversial film. There would be no such thing as a bad film. People would say, Oh, the room is a bad film. And you could just say, well, that's just your opinion, man. Like it's a great film for some people. I think some people think it's an amazing film. And it's like, well, if film was all subjective, there will be no such thing as taste. You can't have good taste. You can't have bad taste. And it's not in the same way that you would measure something like,
1: I don't know, sometimes people equate it like, well, you can't grade it like math. Yeah. Like, the way that you rate art is just, you know, is subjective. You know, if you get an A-plus yeah. in art, then that doesn't, it's not the same thing as getting A-plus in math. But, like... <laughs> With film, there are actual standards, and with art, there are actual standards that are set. And it's not standards that are written down and are categorized and are overseen by a shadowy board of officials. They are things that touch deep within us, and I don't think some people are able to actually see what really is affecting somebody and why. Like, I talked about lighting, and you talked about sound, and how those two things— uh subconsciously affect people and they can't really put their finger on why they feel anxious in this scene but it's because of those reasons it's because of these reasons that make a film good
0: and i think what whiplash is saying uh, subliminally through the dialogue is music just subjective is people that say that and mean it are completely discrediting the years some people go and the length some people go to perfect their art because you saying that means there's no way in heck you can well, improve yourself. And it also is saying there's no way you can consider yourself good because really you're inseparable from all the other average Joes. Yeah. It's like comparing someone who's never touched a camera before, just selfieing themselves and taking a video. It's like comparing that with the great filmmakers of today and saying, well, it's all subjective. They both press really the record button, depends. you know? Right. And it's like, and if, if I may be so blunt, really, if you're just saying that, then maybe you're just too scared to admit you don't know what art is. Or you just don't you, care. That's yeah. possible too. But that's
1: why this podcast exists, right? It's all based upon like measuring what we think is good film. And I'm not saying that right. all of our opinions are truth or necessarily the most correct, but there are certain measurements and we try to touch on those certain measurements and how the audience is affected by those things.
0: Well, guys, I'm Daniel, and this is James, and you've been listening to our tirades in the podcast, Casually Critical. And uh, as a little bit of fun advice, there are no two words in the English language more harmful than good job. (laughs)